Amen. God is so good. Turn to Acts chapter 8. Amen. This uh, conference, I don't have words just to express the impact that it's had on me. Uh, so far, every time I hear a sermon, I'm thinking that's the video I'm going to show to my church. So far, I've got about eight or ten that I'm going to have to show. Uh, we are, of course, very cognizant that this is the first conference that Pastor Mitchell is not physically with us. He went on to be with Jesus in September. Uh, Pastor Glenn Cluck went to be with Jesus. He chose that same day to go be with the Lord. Uh, and a lot of our brethren overseas, I'm sure they're listening now, but they weren't able to travel with us. My good friend Nigel Brown and many, many others uh, are not with us uh, this uh, uh, morning and this week. Pastor Warner is recovering from a brief hospital stay uh, at home. Uh, but this is the most powerful conference, and I'm sure all of those that I just mentioned uh, are feeling the force and the power of this conference in their homes, wherever they may be. And this is the incredible dimension that Pastor Mitchell set in motion with the vision for our fellowship uh, that we are structured to not only survive, but we are structured to flourish no matter what happens all around us. And I want to talk to you this morning about something that I know every pastor has preached on, come to some great conclusions and revelation, ministered on, uh, very aptly and I'm sure very appropriately, much of what I want to minister and speak about, I'm sure, has already been addressed and spoken uh, on. But there's one thing that all of us have in common this morning, and that is when it comes to crisis, when it comes to facing a, a catastrophic uh, or a traumatic event that we've never experienced before, we all need help to process it. All of us. Whether you're a pastor, we get on the phone and we call for help. We come to church. If you're a member of one of our congregations, uh, you went to church uh, for the purpose uh, of hearing revelation that would uh, calm the storm, uh, that would give you revelation, that would enable you to process uh, what's happening uh, and what's going on all around us. We are fairly deep now, about 10 months, into what we have identified as the crisis of a lifetime. I've heard people say things like that. This is the very worst trauma and crisis uh, that we've ever experienced. And of course, that may very well be true. But I think that the way that our fellowship is structured, the types of things that Pastor Mitchell uh, has imparted, taught, and inserted into the foundation of our fellowship makes us uniquely able to handle a crisis, process it with revelation. And I don't talk about surviving crisis. I want to talk about flourishing in crisis. 
I want to talk about fruitfulness uh, during crisis. Uh, I want to talk about God doing more uh, during a crisis uh, than we've ever seen him do uh, so that when all is said and done, we will say, surely the Lord's hand was upon us. Honestly, for me, the highlight of last year, 2020, was not crisis because there was an overarching dimension that was working, uh, and that is what God did last year. How about that? How about souls saved? families coming into a church, uh, deliverance, uh, conferences went on, uh, some delayed, some live stream, uh, but we planted as many churches last year as we have ever planted. Those are the real highlights of last year. Now, notwithstanding that, there was a shadow cast over last year. We had to make a lot of adjustments, some things that we wanted to do, we couldn't do. Most everything has been kept intact. Just look at this conference this morning. But what I want to do this morning is I want to put crisis in context, in, in perspective, and it can be any crisis. Family goes through crisis. Uh, there are losses and setbacks and failures uh, and tragedy and trauma that we have to deal with. Churches uh, go through traumas. Uh, internally, things happen uh, that, that, that put a congregation or a church uh, in crisis. And of course, uh, things can happen way beyond our control uh, internationally, like this pandemic, uh, that we have to react to, we have to respond to. Uh, and uh, this is what I want to uh, talk about this morning, uh, putting crisis in perspective. Uh, and the real title of my sermon uh, is Flourishing uh, in Crisis, because that is what we're going to do going home from this conversation conference. Uh, 2021 is going to be a year where the church flourishes. Not interested in what happens politically. Uh, I don't care what happens in terms uh, of the pandemic and all the restrictions and the mandates. That'll be there. That'll happen. Uh, a lot of that is outside the boundaries of our control. Uh, but what we can ensure uh, is that we are going to cooperate with God uh, so that his church flourishes uh, in the midst of all this. So let's read our text. Acts chapter 8, if you think you've been through a crisis this last year, just get a load of what we're going to read about right now. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Now Saul was consenting to Stephen's death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church which was in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered. That means they were displaced from their homes throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, and committing them to prison. Therefore, this is where the flourishing comes in. Therefore, those who were scattered 
went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria, preached to them, and the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed came out, and were lay, uh, many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. That almost doesn't make sense, does it? The two don't go together. So this scripture forces us to put crisis in perspective. There are some things, beloved, that never change. Let's examine for a moment the birth of the early church. Jesus was crucified, put in a tomb. Three days later, he rose from the dead. This changed everything. Now, finally, the disciples are convinced. Some of them doubted, the Bible says, even after that. But for the most part, they're convinced. Jesus appeared to the disciples and to 500 others in his resurrected self. Given them, he gave them their marching orders in Acts 1.8. You shall receive power. That's a resurrected Christ saying that. <laughs> You're going to receive power. When the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. This sounds incredible. This sounds like the church is going to finally reach her peak and her glory. This sounds powerful and great. They're going to be witnesses. They're going to travel to the ends of the earth. What he doesn't mention is the atmosphere of crisis that is going to envelop the church as the they're going about all that. Why didn't he say something about that? Why didn't he mention uh, trouble and death and persecution? Uh, you're going to be displaced from it. He leaves all of that out of the equation uh, and says, I'm going to give you power uh, and you're going to go to the ends of the earth uh, to preach the gospel. See, we have a misconception. We wrongly think that timing has to do with favorable circumstances uh, and the absence of crisis. So let's consider the timing, God's timing for all this. Galatians 4.4, 4, but when the fullness of time, that's another way of saying God's time. It's another way of saying when God chose to do something. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. The Amplified says, but when in God's plan the proper time had fully come, God sent his son. So when was God's right time? Let's look at that for a moment. No prophet for 400 years, the entire world was spiritually dead. No active voice of God. The Romans dominated the world. They were pagans. They were heathen. They were sexually deviant and perverted. They worshipped false gods. And they, and they exported that to, to the entire, nearly the entire civilized world. Christians were treated like criminals. They were imprisoned and put to death. There was an evil and wicked religious system in place headquartered in Jerusalem. They eventually called for the execution of Jesus Christ to be carried out by the Romans. Less than favorable, wouldn't you say? In the fullness of time, 
God inserted himself into the world and it was met with upheaval. Consider the church. We read our text. I tried to emphasize the various features that are spoken about, and they are all used in, a, in, in an exaggerated form of language. At the time, a great persecution, not persecution, not a little bit of trouble, not a little bit of opposition, not a little bit of a great massive persecution arose against the church. And they were all scattered. They were yanked out of their home. You can't even fathom that. You have a home. Your home is secure. You pay your rent. You pay your mortgage. You don't have any doubt uh, that when you go home from this conference, uh, you're going to be able to enter into your house and live your life and you're comfortable and you're secure. And, uh, and uh, that's, uh, that's something that we have confidence in. They were removed physically from their homes uh, and had to become refugees. The word scattered there means uh, that they were actually displaced uh, out of their own home, not only out of their own home, out of their own city, out of their own nation. Devout men carried Stephen. At the same time that's going on, one of the church leaders, Stephen, was carried to his burial. And they made great lamentation. They are weeping. They are grieving. I wonder if some were saying, this isn't supposed to be happening. What's going on around here? I thought we had the Holy Ghost. I thought we had favor. We're seeing miracles. We're seeing people raised from the dead and sicknesses healed. And the lame are walking. Why does God allow this? The Amplified Translation described it as great and relentless persecution. And then the Amplified goes on to uh, translate verse 3 this way. But Saul began ravaging the church and assaulting believers, entering house after house and dragging off men and women, putting them into prison. Stephen was stoned to death. James was beheaded in Acts chapter 12. Peter was arrested and sentenced to death. Try to imagine Joe Campbell stoned to death. Richard Ruby beheaded. Greg Mitchell arrested, put in prison, sentenced to death. And I wonder how this landed with the church in Jerusalem. How would it land with you should we go through that? But they did, and Jesus didn't warn them that was going to come. Other than to tell them that men will revile you and hate you, but it's not very specific. Acts 12, now about that time, Herod the king, one man had the power a lot of power stretched out his hand to harass and do harm to the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now you might say, wait a second here. I thought this was God's perfect time. What in the world? My point, beloved, <laughs> is that crisis is nothing new to the church. When the fullness of time comes, it's met with crisis. Thinking it should be otherwise, 
would be the equivalent of thinking you can invade enemy territory and think that everything is going to come up roses. You're going to be welcomed as the church full of the Holy Ghost going into all the world and preaching the gospel. Are you kidding me? The devil has power on earth to resist, create crisis for the purpose of trying to demoralize the church. Think about how much the early church has to try and process. All at the same time, there is crisis and persecution. They're being displaced from their homes. Some of their leaders are, are being martyred to death. Others are being arrested and they're having to process all this. We are taking hostile action against a well-armed enemy. We're trying to take back what the devil has stolen and he doesn't want to let go of that. Now, in our lifetime, for sure, probably nothing has been as effective as COVID in trying to undermine the integrity, the function, the influence, and the impact of the church. And of course, the objective with any crisis is to try to silence the church, intimidate the church, and that effort is going on right now, but I, for one, am not going to stand for it. I will not allow the devil to intimidate me or instill fear to the point where I am prevented from doing what God's called me to do, and neither should you as the church of Jesus Christ. Now let me introduce you, putting crisis in perspective to a little history. You may not have learned American history, so I may be the first one to inform you about these matters. In the early part of the last century, from 1914 to 1918, four years, the outbreak of World War I occurred, and the Spanish flu epidemic swept the world. Just England alone, the United Kingdom, had 744,000 of their young men killed during that war. They had a population at the time of 43 million. 744,000 of their young men, future leaders, future carpenters, future businessmen, future architects, future influential men, future leaders of one sort or another were erased in a four-year period of time. 744,000 deaths to a nation would be the equivalent of 5.6 million deaths here in America, just like that in a four-year period. The horrific scale on top of that war of the 1918 influenza pandemic known as the Spanish flu. It's difficult for anyone alive today to fathom this. The virus affected 500 million people worldwide and killed, so far they say, they tell us uh, that COVID has killed 1.9 million worldwide. The Spanish flu killed 20 to 50 million worldwide. No vaccine, no antidote of any kind, 
That's more than all the soldiers and civilians killed during World War I combined. While the global pandemic, I'm reading from a, uh, a record of this, while the global pandemic lasted for two years, a significant number of deaths uh, were packed into three especially cruel months uh, in the fall of 1918. Historians now believe that the fatal severity of the Spanish flu's second wave was caused by a mutated virus spread by wartime troop movements. We can't fathom that. A world war, vicious, brutal, hundreds of thousands, millions of deaths, uh, it, a, a pandemic that makes this one look very, very minor and small, although it's not. I have empathy for anyone who's gotten sick and people have experienced loss. But you know what else is going on at that very same time? The first Pentecostal revival in 2,000 years. In the fullness of time, it occurred. The 1904-1905 Welsh Revival was the largest Christian revival in Wales during the 20th century. It was one of the most dramatic in terms of its effect on the population and triggered revivals in other countries. The movement kept the churches of Wales filled for many years to come. Seats being placed in aisles in Mount Pleasant Baptist Church in Swansea for more than 20 years, for example. Meanwhile, the awakening swept the rest of Britain, Scandinavia, parts of Europe, North America, the mission fields of India and the Orient, Africa and Latin America. So by the time World War I breaks out in 1914, the Welsh revival had finally gotten sufficient traction to begin to go international and at the same time of the war, at the same time of the flu epidemic, I declare to you, beloved, that the church of Jesus Christ was flourishing. Most of you, many of you, pastors especially, are well-versed in the history of Pentecostalism, but bear with me while I read this uh, uh, short article. Uh, the dates are important in light of what we're talking about. Modern Pentecostalism began in January 1st, on January 1st, 1901. Agnes Osmond, a student at Charles F. Parnham uh, Bethel Bible School in Topeka, Kansas, spoke in tongues. On January 3rd, Parham and a dozen other students also spoke in tongues. Parham and his followers later moved to Texas and began a spiritual revival in 1905. This was followed by what became known as the Azusa Street Revival, centered on the apostolic faith gospel mission in Azusa Street in Los Angeles, California, led by the African-American preacher William Joseph Seymour, who had studied with Parham. In 1906, uh, Seymour preached that God would send a new Pentecost if people prayed for one and was rewarded when he and his congregation began speaking in other tongues. Uh, this event greatly helped uh, by apocalyptic thoughts uh, prompted by the San Francisco earthquake, another major crisis, uh, and it caused them to think uh, about biblical prophecy, and it goes on. Uh, this happened soon after. Sparked, uh, it sparked a powerful revival driven by the three doctrines uh, of salvation salvation, sanctification, and baptism in the Spirit, and in which the gifts of the Spirit were seen on a large scale. Over 13,000 people were said to have spoken in tongues in the first year of the Azusa Street Revival. At first, the Pentecostal ideas flourished in individual church groups all across North America as it spread like wildfire. But it was not until 1914 
that the first Pentecostal denomination, the Church of God in Christ, was founded. The first Pentecostal church in the UK, England, was founded by William Oliver Hutchinson in 1908 at the Emmanuel Mission Hall in Bournemouth. It became the headquarters of a network of Pentecostal churches, uh, which became known as the Apostolic Faith Church. Another early Pentecostal denomination was the Elam Pentecostal Church, uh, which was founded in 1915 in England at the height of World War I. Uh, and on the uh, beginning stages of this incredible pandemic, uh, this began in Ireland by a Welshman named George Jeffries. In 1914, uh, the Assemblies of God was formed. From 1919 to 1924, the Assemblies of God were formed in Great Britain, Canada, and Australia. In, 19, uh, uh, in 1918, at the height of the pandemic, it was killing tens of millions, uh, and uh, right uh, uh, as World War I was coming to an end, uh, Amy McPherson crossed the country uh, preaching tent revivals in her car, uh, and it sparked an incredible revival. In 1923, uh, Angelus Temple opened. Uh, in the fullness of time, uh, Pentecost was reborn. The church flourished as the world was coming apart at the seams. They didn't just survive the pandemic. God did something during it that overwhelmed the pandemic. In World War II, fast forward a, a few decades, England suffered 384,000 dead in combat. They suffered 70,000 civilians over half of them from London. Imagine uh, trying to pastor a church in London during the Blitz. Bombs are falling on a nightly basis. Over 40,000 civilians killed in London alone. How would we have led our fellowship during that kind of atmosphere? And the fact is that during that war, in the aftermath of it, the church didn't handle the crisis successfully. Churches literally were erased and evaporated. I happened to be involved in negotiating for the, for the purchase uh, of the first Walthamstow building. It was owned uh, by a group of eight elderly Baptist men. These men uh, had all gotten saved and baptized uh, in the 19-teens uh, and in the 1920s during that great revival uh, that swept across England. After World War I, that church continued to flourish. These men got saved. But after World War II, the church, he told me, was running seven to 800 people. And it's not that big of a building, and it's packed into a very tight little neighborhood. But he said we had services Sunday mornings, three or four services Sunday night, Wednesday night. He told me about revival preachers that they would have come in. But after World War Two, the church uh, literally disappeared or nearly disappeared except for a small handful of individuals. Which brings me to my next point. And I want to talk about some unique features that we should consider because crisis uh, can be mishandled. We've watched in our fellowship uh, pastors mishandle this crisis. We've watched members of our churches struggle under it, haven't we? 
Some of you that are sitting here uh, have struggled under the weight of this crisis. Uh, We've allowed fear and confusion uh, to displace us uh, from our mission. I've heard people in the early stages say things, well, Pastor, I'm just going to kind of ride this out until the end. Uh, I've instructed my church to tune into El Paso or to tune into Prescott. Then we'll get back to normal. Well, when is normal going to occur? Can you please tell me? I'd like to know. You know, December 31st didn't bring an end to everything that was going on last year. And all of a sudden, January 1st, we're in a new year. Whoopie-doo, no crisis. It didn't happen like that. Crisis is no respecter of dates on a calendar. While a crisis can affect us, and it has, we don't allow it to define us. We're going to define it. And that is on us as pastors and as leaders. Now, we have all been saying, as I've already mentioned, we've never seen anything like this in our lifetime. Saints from past generations might look at you and say, welcome to the club. Or they might look at you after you've described your crisis and say, "Uh, excuse me? Have you read your Bible, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 12? Now, I'm not minimizing this. I've had two pastors die from this, one in Los Angeles, one in Oaxaca. I was thinking about uh, Paul Rojas, our pastor that went to be with Jesus uh, uh, in Los Angeles, and I called my son this morning uh, on my way to church just to talk a little bit with Joe about Paul and his family and, and how things are going with his wife and so forth. I've had people in my church get very sick. My assistant pastor, Ernie Lopez's brother, has been in the hospital now for eight weeks. Much of that on a ventilator, intubated, all kinds of crisis. So I'm not minimizing this. But all kinds of attitudes formulate in people that we've observed almost overnight We're all naturally fearful, naturally insecure, naturally uncertain. Uh, But you plant the seeds of COVID uh, into a seedbed like that, and all of a sudden, as pastors, we were dealing with uh, irrational, unprecedented levels of fear from members of our congregations. What does crisis do? How does it land with us as a fellowship, as a church, as members of congregations, as pastors? And I'm talking about any crisis. It could be the one that I'm highlighting here, or it could be something personal you may have gone through. We went through personal crisis last year. Our counseling load didn't lessen because of COVID. People didn't all of a sudden quit dying or getting sick, or financial problems didn't stop occurring. We have all the regular crisis along with this. What crisis does is that it disrupts the rhythm of life. The normal flow, the natural occurrence of life. God created nature. 
He created your physical body to function with a certain rhythm. Do you know your heart beats 102,000 times a day? You breathe 25,000 times a day? Your body is this incredible symphony orchestra. The heart beating, your respiratory system working, your nervous system working, all in synchronization. Sickness is when the rhythm of your body is disrupted. Your heart, your lungs, your nervous system, the flow of blood, blood clots, and so forth. Uh, Sickness, the demonic uh, aspect of sickness uh, is the devil doing what he's trying to do to the church, uh, which is interfere with the rhythm of your body. When you're healthy, uh, that means there's rhythm, there's heartbeat, there's drumbeat. Everything is functioning as God created it to function. All of our ministries... How we function as a church and a fellowship has a rhythm, a strong, regular, repeated pattern of movement. And when it's disrupted, major problems can occur. What does a doctor do? He tries to get the rhythm of your body functioning. If the heart stops, they, 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 they beat your chest and then they put the electronic devices uh, to try to get your heartbeat going, get the rhythm going again, get the orchestra playing again. COVID has disrupted the normal rhythm of our ministries, our ability to assemble together, outreaches, concert scenes, Bible studies, fellowship, not supposed to fellowship anymore. Conferences have been, had to have been restructured, reorganized. In March, 10 days after COVID hit and we were shut down, we held in El Paso the first fully online conference. We, we did everything we could to maintain the rhythm. Revivals have been disrupted. Many of our churches haven't been having revivals. The ministry of evangelists, I must say, has been disrupted. They've been sitting at home, staring at their phone, hoping someone will call them. When rhythm is disrupted, weakness occurs in your physical body, yes, but also in the church. And if we're not careful, our rhythm becomes our comfort zone. If we can't function the way we've always been able to function, uh, then we better panic, we better get depressed. I had a pastor walk into my office the other day and say, oh, Pastor Stevens, I'm so depressed. I wanted to body slam him. I'm not depressed. Uh, I'm trying to figure this out uh, and how to maintain the rhythm of the church. But we think, well, if we can't assemble, if we can't fellowship, if we can't have our conferences, if we can't have revivals, uh, we might as well just quit and give up and be depressed. And I'm not just concerned about people in our churches that I'm trying to resuscitate them and get their rhythm going again. I'm concerned about pastors as well. And there's long-term effects to this. If this whole thing had lasted just a few weeks, let's say from March 18th when it all started uh, until the end of April, six weeks, uh, it would have been no problem for everyone to default back to where we once were. But now we're going on toward a year of our rhythm being disrupted and now people have 
establish new habits. People that used to come to three services a week in my church, anyone can come to every service that they want to come, but they aren't all all. They aren't all because they've established a habit. We'll go to church Sunday morning, too much of a hassle to get ready, go. We'll just tune in Sunday night to the live stream. Now it's not a matter of defaulting back to where we once were automatically because new habits have been established. And do you realize that there are people that have gotten saved in our churches uh, in the last five, six, seven, eight, ten months? Uh, this is all they know. <laughs> They've never seen the natural rhythm of how our churches and ministries function. But when you disrupt people's habits, they form new ones. And it's not easy to recapture. And this brings us to the relevance, the importance, the necessity of preaching. I want every one of my pastors to be preaching to his own church. Don't tune in to El Paso. You are their pastor. You get a hold of God for them. They need you to do that. Every pastor has to lead his flock through the preaching of God's Word. And I'm sorry if I don't have some new thing for you today. But to me, COVID reinforced and reminded me of the critical importance of what I do. Getting a hold of God making sure I am fully prepared when I stand in front of the pulpit to, to minister the Word of God to a people that are traumatized and fearful and uncertain and don't know what's going on. They need a clear-sounding Word from God, and I have been assigned to deliver that to them. You better be doing that. You better have the mind of God for your church. And every church is different. From state to state, from California to New York to Florida to Texas uh, to Arizona and parts in between, there are different things going on, different levels uh, of the pandemic playing out. Uh, Pastor Ruby and Pastor Campbell had major outbreaks. They had to, they had to calm the sheep. Uh, how did they do it? By preaching the Word of God, a wayma, a word in due season. It's our calling and our responsibility to put things in perspective, to not allow people to govern their decisions by the irrational. They may do that, but it's going to have to be in the context of, of me making an effort to preach clarity and revelation to them. Our job is to assuage their fears. Keep hope and vision alive. What we do is life and death for the church of Jesus Christ. If we are going to see the church flourish in 2021, and I believe that we are, we're going to see a worldwide move of God that is going to blow our minds, but that must be in the framework of pastors doing their job and fulfilling their calling. People are going to flourish during this. And who knows what's to come? We don't even know. God help us all.
Paul wrote to Timothy. Timothy's in a personal crisis. If you get the context of his two letters to Timothy, he's struggling within himself. And Paul writes this clear-sounding word to him and to us. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out, convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching for the time will come where they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap to themselves teachers. They will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. You be watchful. You endure afflictions. You work the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. Peter was writing to the church that we're talking about in Acts 8. He's writing to a church and a people that are under severe persecution. They've been displaced from their homes. And there is a state of panic that he can see fomenting uh, throughout the ranks uh, of the church scattered all over the place. One uh, commentator that I read said, persecution can either, either cause growth or bitterness in the Christian life. Uh, response determines the result. Uh, in writing to Jewish believers struggling in the midst of persecution, uh, Peter encourages Peter encourages them to take heart, have courage and courageously continue to extend the program of Jesus Christ. Pastor Warner just recently had a hospital stay. He was intubated for two days. Tube down his throat. He said it was uncomfortable, unsettling, especially because they had to... Uh, they had to sedate him, but not knock him out. So he's kind of conscious and kind of not conscious, and he's feeling the fear and the, and the kind of panic and uncertainty, what's going on around me. And as Pastor Warner's talking to me, I mean, I'm breaking. I hate to see my pastor in that kind of a situation and circumstance. But he said there was one nurse. There was about eight people in and out of his room doing this, doing that, pulling switches, taking tests, pulse, and all that. Most of them didn't talk, didn't say a word. But he said there was this one nurse. He said, I looked forward to him coming in. This nurse would talk to me like I could talk back, and Pastor Warner couldn't speak back. He would joke around. He would tell him things are going to be okay. We're getting to the end of this. And Pastor Warner said, I'm never going to forget this man because his words, his words settled me down, calmed me, and made the circumstance bearable. Preach the word. So let's talk about a strategy going forward as I close. We have to do everything we can to maintain the rhythm of our ministries. We're going to keep doing what we have been doing. Nothing new, folks. When Greg Mitchell became leader of our fellowship, uh, this is not a new era, a new phase, a new thing, a new doctrine. Uh, this is what Pastor Mitchell set in motion, uh, and we're just going to continue to see that snowball uh, that Pastor Mitchell pushed down the hill. We're going to see it growing uh, and growing uh, and growing and becoming more and more forceful and influential. Our fellowship has been made for this. 
Pastor Mitchell always said, I didn't build this fellowship, God did. And we would do well to remember that. So we go home from this conference to inspire our churches with great hope, great faith, and great expectation for what is to come. And isn't that the target? of crisis and the devil, it is to deflate our hope, our faith, our expectation. I had someone tell me one time, when all this is over, Pastor, we're not going to have a church. I rebuke you, get you behind me, Satan. We are going to have a greater church, more than we ever have. And at this altar right now, we are going to declare war in the spiritual realm, and we are going to believe God for victory. Crisis and revival, nothing new, folks. It's God's perfect time to bring about the most incredible Pentecostal revival the world has ever seen. Let's thank God for that this morning. I want every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody moving.